My name is Alan Carr. I'm pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Lenore, North Carolina. Thank you for visiting our webpage and for taking the time to listen to one of our sermons. We hope this sermon, which was preached in our pulpit, will be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord and help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of the Word of God. We're in the book of Haggai right now, the book of Haggai have been for the last two Sundays. We will be today and again next Sunday, unless the Lord rearranges the plan. The book of Haggai in the Old Testament, third book from the end. You should be able to find it, 37th book of the Old Testament, right between Zechariah and Zephaniah, right there. You can't miss it, just right there. Yeah, one of the uh, 12 so-called minor prophets. Not minor because of their message, but minor because of their length as compared to the major prophets like Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, Jeremiah. Important messages in their day. And the messages continue to be important in our day. I've been challenged mightily by studying this prophecy, reading these words. This week has really spoken to my heart, and I hope that God will affect, use it to affect change in my life, eternal change for His glory. And I hope it will speak to you too. That's why we do this, you know. I get along with God. I pray and study. He speaks to me. I deal with it. Then I bring it to you and share it with you Amen. in the hopes that you too will deal with it. <laughs> And that's what we have to do, really. I've got to deal with it somewhere along the way. And I just get to deal with it first. But here we are. Haggai chapter 2. You found your place? We'll begin reading in verse number 10. And if you have that place, let's stand together. We'll read down through verse number 19. Haggai chapter 2, verse number 10. And the Bible says, In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage, that's beans, or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days were, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat, for to draw out fifty vessels of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting, and mildew, and hail, and all the labor of your hands, yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? 
Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth. From this day will I bless you. You can be seated. The date Haggai preached this particular sermon was December the 18th, 520 B.C. The people of God are engaged in building the temple. They've been engaged in this work for three months. The work is hard, and the work seems in their minds to be endless. They're making progress, but they're still discouraged. Now, as we've already discussed, the Jews, because of their sins, were chastened by God. They refused to repent under God's chastisement, and God sent the Babylonian army led by King Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the nation of Judah. The Babylonians, when they came, were merciless. They decimated the city of Jerusalem and they completely destroyed the temple which had been built by Solomon. Now this occurred in 586 B.C. And for the next 48 years, the people of Israel, the Jews, were held captive in Babylon. By 538 B.C., the Babylonians had been conquered by the Persians. And Cyrus, the Persian king, allowed 50,000 Jews to return to their homeland. When the Jews returned to Judah from Babylon, they found their nation in a state of absolute devastation. The very first task they undertake was to rebuild the brazen altar, and when they had built the altar, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. You find this in Ezra chapter 3, verse number 3. They had a desire to worship, and that is commendable. Two years later, in 536 B.C., they they laid the foundation for the new temple. You find this in Ezra chapter 3, verse number 10. When the foundation for the new temple was laid, Ezra tells us the younger Jews who saw the temple being rebuilt, he says in Ezra 3.12, they shouted for joy. But many of the older men who remembered Solomon's temple and all of its glory, the Bible says they wept with a loud voice. Now, we can understand why the younger men were excited and why they were praising God. They were excited at the prospect of having a temple where they could worship the Lord. I get that. But why were these older men weeping? Well, they wept because they remembered the glory of the first temple. The temple built by by Solomon was a glorious building. It was beautiful, it was covered with gold, it was ornate. It was amazing, and people came from all over the world just to see it. But beyond its external beauty was the fact that the temple was where God met with His people. And the manifest presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat, in that temple. And Solomon's temple represented the presence of God among His people. But because of Israel's sin, God judged them. And God removed His presence from the Holy of Holies. He left His temple and God no longer dwelt among His people. You read this in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. The Jews also remembered the first temple, its glory, the manifest presence of God. And they wept when they remembered what they had had and what they had lost. They wept when they realized this temple would not be as grand as Solomon's temple. And they wept because the presence of God would not fill this temple. It was a 
devastating time for those who remember the glory of the first temple and who remember the presence of God being there. Now when the Jews laid the foundation for the new temple, they immediately faced oppression and opposition from the Samaritans. They retacked. And so they stopped working. And for 16 years, the project to rebuild the temple ceased. And God sent the prophet Haggai to challenge and stimulate the people to finish the project of building the temple. Haggai preached his first message on August the 29th, 520 B.C. And a mere 24 days later, the Jews heeded his message, and they went to work and began building upon the foundation of the new temple. But just a month into their, into their labor, they became discouraged. And so on October the 17th, 520 B.C., Haggai preached his second message. His second message was designed to encourage these discouraged workers, And they heeded his message and they continued to build. Now fast forward two months. December the 18th, 520 B.C. Once again, there is discouragement among the workers. Now as as I stated a moment ago, the Jews had been suffering because of their sin. Not only had they suffered captivity in Babylon, but they had also suffered financially. Because they had neglected God's house and God's work. God had cursed the labor of their hands and their harvest, and God had touched them in other ways which impacted them materially. And they failed to see that sin until Haggai pointed it out, and when Haggai preached, the people repented and began to work on the temple. But now they're three months into this project, and nothing has changed. They're still struggling, they are still in poverty, and they are discouraged because they've not yet begun to see God blessing as He promised He would earlier in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The Jews were expecting instant blessing. And when those blessings did not come, they became defeated and discouraged and they wanted to abandon their work. So Haggai receives a new message from God. And that's what we're going to consider today. And his message to the people in these verses is for them to trust and obey. They were to continue their work by faith, and they were to wait on God to send the blessings in his time. Because God will do everything God promised he would do, and the blessings God promised them will come when the time is right. Now this passage has a lot to say to us this morning. Because I am preaching to people who are discouraged. I am preaching to people who, like the Jews, have grown complacent and apathetic. I am preaching to people who have allowed sin and disobedience to dwell in your lives. And I am preaching to people who are not enjoying God's best because you're not giving God your best. And the same message Haggai has for us is the message he had for the Jews, and that is we are to trust and obey. So I want to walk through these verses today, verses 10 through 19. And I want to share some commands that Haggai gives the people. And though the commands Haggai gave the people in 520 B.C. still still stand for the people of God today. And if you and I will just obey God and trust Him, In His time, we will see our situation turn around for His glory. So let's think about that thought, trust and obey. And I want to share the commands that are given in this passage. Notice first, 
in verses 10 through 14. Haggai tells them to reflect on the problem. Now Haggai begins his sermon by asking, by asking the priests a couple of questions to which God wants the answer. God expects these priests to know the law, and so God directs these questions to them to see how they will answer Him. And to our ears, these questions sound kind of strange, but there's a point here that God wants His people to understand. So the first question in verse number, in verse number 12 is this. He says, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Now here's the picture. A piece of flesh has been consecrated. It has been offered to God. Now a portion of some sacrifices was given to the priests for them to take and to eat. So this sacrifice has been offered. The priest has received his portion. He is carrying it in the skirt of his garment. It is a consecrated garment. It is a consecrated piece of meat. And so the question is, if the garment is holy and the meat is holy, does anything else which touches that garment become holy? And the answer the priest gives is no. And they are absolutely correct. Just because a piece of consecrated holy flesh is carried in a holy garment, that holiness is not transferred to anything else which touches that garment. So lesson number one is this. Holiness cannot be transferred from one object to another. You got that? We're going to come back to it. Now in verse number 13, the second question is this. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, any of those things he mentioned, the beans and the bread and the wine, all that stuff, if anybody touches a dead body, then touches any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. And they are correct. While holiness cannot be transferred from one object to another, defilement can. If a priest touches a dead body, anything else he touches becomes defiled because he is defiled. So lesson one, holiness cannot be transferred from one object to another. Lesson two is, Sin can be transferred. Now you say, what's the point in all this? Well, the point in all this is that the Jews had built their burnt altar and they were offering sacrifices to God. But even as they sacrificed to God, they neglected God's house. They had not rebuilt the temple as God commanded them to. And so what God is saying out of lesson number one is what they did right would not make up for what they did wrong. What they did right would not make up for their neglect of the temple. And lesson two teaches us that their neglect of the temple would defile everything else they did. You got that? So they think we're serving God because we're doing some right things. God said, listen, you're not getting anything out of that because you're defiled. That's the point. God says you are dirty, so everything you touch is dirty as well. So let's put this in terms we can understand. Let's say I had a, a, a bottle of contaminated water. The water's dirty. And into that bottle of contaminated water, I introduce a drop of clean water. Would the clean water make the dirty water clean? Of course not. 
the clean drop of water would become dirty because it touched the contaminated water. You understand the picture God's trying to paint? Let me give you another illustration. If you, if you walk on a clean carpet, with, uh, if you walk on a dirty carpet with clean shoes, will your clean shoes make the carpet clean? Oh, absolutely not. But if you walk on a clean carpet with dirty shoes, you can transfer the dirt from your shoes to that carpet. You understand? Let me give you another example. If you wash your hands and touch a dirty plate, will your clean hands make that plate clean? Well, of course not. But if you touch a dirty plate with clean hands, the defilement that's on the plate can make your hands dirty. I'll give you one more example. Suppose someone with a cold kisses a person who is healthy. Will the sick person catch healthiness from the healthy person? Well, of course not. But there's a good chance the healthy person will become sick because they've been exposed to germs. You see what God is saying? If we are defiled, then everything we touch becomes defiled. And no amount of goodness will give us holiness if we are defiled. So the bottom line here is that sin spreads, but holiness doesn't. Sin is like dirt, and it spreads quickly. And just as it's hard to keep a house clean, it is hard to keep a life clean because sin spreads. Sin is like a contagious disease that spreads easily from one person to another. It transfers so much easier than holiness. And God takes these two examples and He looks at His people in verse 14 and He says, So is this people and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and that which they offer there, being on the altar, is unclean. So, the Jews were offering sacrifices, but their hearts were not right with God. They were going through the motions of religion, but the Lord did not have their heart. And as a result, everything they touched was tainted by their sin. So all their so-called holy works were actually wicked and unacceptable in the sight of God. Everything they claimed to be doing good in the name of God was sinful in the eyes of the Lord. God did not want a fine temple if it was only going to be filled with people with sinful hearts. God did not want animal sacrifices unless those sacrifices were accompanied by the living sacrifices of His people. God wants His people to know they have defiled both the work of the temple and their offerings because their hearts are not right with Him. And as Jeremiah told them in Jeremiah chapter 7, the mere presence of a rebuilt temple will not render them holy. They could build the finest temple the world has ever seen and offer every sacrifice you could imagine, but it would not make them holy in the sight of God. What God demands is a change of heart and life and not mere outward conformity to religion. And everything in your life and mine comes down to the condition of our heart. When our heart is right with God, the fruit produced by the life is holy and pleasing to the Lord. But when the heart is not right, everything we touch is tainted by sin. True holiness always begins in the heart. 
And that's why God tells us to keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. That's why Solomon said, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. And that is why Jesus warned us that every sin we commit originates in our heart. Whatever we do externally is a result of who we are and what we think internally. If we do wicked things on the outside, it is because we are wicked on the inside. But even if we do good things on the outside and the inside is wicked, the so-called good things we do externally are tainted by the sin inside our hearts. Y'all with me? We can do all the things people associate with religion and Christianity and still not be right in the sight of God. We can go to church, we can pray, we can read our Bible, we can give our money, we can talk about Jesus and still not be right with Him. Because holiness does not come from what we do, holiness comes from the heart. And when the heart is right, the life and everything the life produces will be right. But when the heart is wrong, everything the life produces will be tainted by sin. God wants your heart. And when God has your heart, God has your life. And when He has your life, holiness in every area will be the outcome. When God doesn't have your heart, Everything you do will be defiled by your sin. So does God have your heart? Is your life marked by holiness? Or is your life marred by sin? Now one of the problems in our churches today is a manifest lack of holiness. As I said, we're doing all the things people associate with Christianity, but the Lord does not have our heart. And as a result, our preaching is ineffective. Our singing is weak. Our worship is anemic. Our praise is tepid. And we are ineffective in reaching the lost with the good news of the gospel because everything we put our hand to is defiled by the sin in our hearts. So God calls these people to reflect on the problem. God says the problem is you, the problem is your hearts are not right with me, and because your hearts are not right with me, everything you touch is defiled. God says holiness does not spread. But sin, like a contagion, does. And it defiles everything it touches, even holy things. Reflect on the problem. Y'all sure you with me? Number two, he says reflect on the past. In verses 15 through 17, after identifying the sins of the Jews, God calls them to examine the past. He says in verse 15, And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of God. He calls them back, to the years preceding their efforts to rebuild the temple. Remember, for 16 years they had a foundation of a new temple laid, but they had not built one stone on top of it. And God reminds them that during that 16-year period, in verse 16, that everything they did came to nothing. 
They were working hard. They were farming their land. They were reaping their crops. But they were only getting a little, a little less than half of what they expected. And the reason is because God had touched it. And he tells them in verse 17, the reason you're struggling and the reason you're suffering is because I have put my hand against you. He said in verse 17, I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you turn not to me, saith the Lord. God says, I caused this. God said, I smote you. I sent blasting, which refers to drought and excessive heat. God said, I sent the mildew, which, which refers to crops being too wet. And either one of those extreme ends of the spectrum are devastating to a crop, and farmers know that. I mean, if you have too much heat and it's too dry, the crop doesn't produce or it dies. If it's too wet, it gets moldy and it gets mildew on it, and it will not work that way. And God said, what did grow? I sent the hail to strip it. He said, you, you came out with nothing because your hearts are not right with me. And God says, I'm behind this. I did this. How you like that? That does not fit with the image of God we have today, does it? The God we have today is all love and he's ooey-gooey. He's like this heavenly grandfather who just can't wait to bless you. He wants to pull you up in his lap and hug on you. God says, no, I'm starving you out and I'm doing this to get your attention. God said, I did all of this and still you wouldn't turn to me. God said, I sent chastisement to you not to punish you, but God said to get your attention. And all these curses God mentioned are, are promised to Israel should they violate their covenant with God. And God did this to call them back to Himself, and yet they would not come to Him. Now here's the problem. Israel was contaminated by a sin problem, and their sin contaminated everything they touched. Their temple efforts, their sacrifices... All their talk of the law and the Lord, it was all rendered ineffective because of the sin in their hearts. Now I want to say to you, sin has the same power over us. It has the, it has the power to contaminate everything we touch. You believe that? Some of you have sin in your life, you've never dealt with it, You've never repented of it. You've never turned from it. And you live your life carefree and happy as if you had no problem. But I'm telling you, everything you touch is being contaminated by the sin in your heart. Paul said, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, which means decay and ruin. When we sow to the Spirit, we of the Spirit reap everlasting life, righteousness, and wholeness. But when we sow to sin, we, we, we reap decay and devastation and ruin. Let's make this practical to our lives today. When we fail to serve God and we sow to the flesh instead of the Spirit, we will reap the fruit of our actions. And God will use whatever means are necessary to call His people back to Him. He does not do that to punish us. He does that to chasten us and correct us and to bring us back to where we need to be. And I promise you, 
if you belong to God and you allow sin and defilement to exist in your life, there will be chastisement upon you. I don't know how it'll come. In their case, it came through the oppression of the Samaritans. It came explicitly through God touching their crops and hurting them financially and materially. And God may do that in your life. He may allow you to suffer financially and materially. He may allow you to experience physical difficulty. He may allow trouble in your home. I don't know what God will do, but I'm saying God will do whatever is necessary to get your attention and draw you back to Him. Look what God says. And again, He doesn't do this because He hates you. He does it because He loves you. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You say, that doesn't sound very loving to me. Well, I realize the trend today is against correcting children. But when I was growing up, they corrected children. If we stepped out of line, we got beat back in the line. When our kids came along, we practiced the same sort of methodology upon them and we're still enacting discipline upon grandchildren today. It has to happen. And we don't do it because we hate them. We do it because we love them and we want them to walk in the right path. And God says, you're my children. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 gives us an extensive overview of this thing called chastisement. And God tells us there and that, that he, he does this because we are His sons. He said, whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. He said, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? And then God goes on to say in Hebrews 12, 7, that if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You're no child of God. If you can sin and sin and sin and sin, and there's no chastisement on your life, you are not a child of God. It doesn't matter what you profess. It doesn't matter how many times you pray to sinner's prayer. If you can live a life of disobedience and rebellion to the commands of God, and He doesn't chasten you, you do not belong to Him. And because we're like the Jews in that God has told us how to live and we choose to live a different way, we are like them because sin has defiled everything we touch. So we come to church and there's no manifest power of God. Why? Because our hearts are not right with Him. Sin in our life affects everything we touch. That's why our preaching lacks power. That's why our teaching is ineffective. That's why our worship is dead. It's why our services lack the manifest presence of God because we have allowed the sin in us to defile everything around us and we need to know that unrepentant sin in the life of the believer has the power to kill the life and power of a church. That's just the way it is. So what's the answer? we got to do what Israel did. 
You see, God is calling them to reflect upon the past. He wants them to look back to the past 16 years when they walked in disobedience and they neglected His house and they refused to obey Him and refused to honor Him by building His house. They have now repented. They have started that work and we must do what they did. We must acknowledge our sin. We must repent of it and we must get busy serving the Lord. Folk, listen. Holiness is not transferable, but sin is contagious. It really is. But here's the blessing. God forgives sinners. Thank God He does. He forgives us when we fail Him. And forgiveness is easy. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is easy. It is the work of a moment. But holiness is the work of a lifetime. Because every decision and every action either sows to the flesh or to the Spirit, and what we sow to the flesh, listen, we will reap from the flesh ruin and disaster, but when we sow to the Spirit, we reap back the things of God. Israel sowed to the flesh, and from the flesh they reaped devastation. God says, remember what that was like. But now things have changed. And God wants them, thirdly, to reflect on His promises. Verses 18 and 19. Having called them to remember the past with all of its problems, God now calls them to face the future. Yes, they had sinned in the past by neglecting God and by allowing sin to dwell in their lives. And they've paid a high price for that sin. But now their hearts have turned back to God and they're once again faithfully serving Him and rebuilding His house. God wants them to know that the past with all of its problems is gone and the chastisement that came with it is gone. God wants them to know the past is the past and it can't be changed. But the future is going to be different. And so God says to them, From this day I will bless you in verse number 19. Make a couple of observations here. First, even though the Jews had taken the step of turning back to God and rebuilding the temple, their fields were still barren. And some of them were wondering after a couple months here of doing this, whether the temple was really worth the effort. After all, we're working ourselves to death and we're not seeing all these blessings God promised. And some of you may feel that way. You may wonder, have we gone too far? Has the church gone too far? Have I as an individual gone too far? Wouldn't it be easy for us just to say, what's the use and why try? Things will never be different. Well, if you feel that way, let me say something to you. You did not get to be where you are today overnight. Your present condition is the result of a series of many, many small decisions you made over time. If you are cold on God, if you are away from Him today, it is because you've made bad decisions and you've taken many steps in the wrong direction. It took you a while to get where you are and it may take you a while to get back to where you need to be. Because wholeness does not happen 
overnight. Your thinking will not change overnight. Your habits will not be overcome in a few days. It takes time for a person to get back to where they need to be. Remember, forgiveness is instantaneous, but wholeness is the work of a lifetime. And every day, you and I make thousands of decisions, don't we? Many of those decisions are quite small. But every decision either leads us toward the light, toward God, or they lead us toward darkness. And so what we got to do is when we wake up in the morning, we got to ask God to help us walk toward the light. And if we keep taking small steps in God's direction, the shadows will begin to recede, and eventually we'll walk out of the blazing light of God's presence. That's what will happen. If you keep heading in His direction, eventually you're going to get there. Now listen, here's what John said about this. He said, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. When we walk in the light, we have fellowship with Christ. And when we have fellowship with Him, we are assured of His presence and blessings. And just like it was with Israel, God's blessings commence the moment we obey Him. Did you get that? God said, I'm going to bless you. They've been working a couple of months. They say, where are the blessing? God said, hang around. Hang around. You're already in the place of blessing. You can't see it yet, God says, but I'm working. And when the time is right, you'll see that I have blessed you. So if you're in a place you don't want to be today with God and you realize that you need to get back to where you should be, you ought to repent of your sin and you ought to come to Him and confess it. And at that moment, God will forgive you and begin the restoration process. It may take time for God to work out everything in your life that needs to be fixed. It may take time. But God wants us to know. And the second lesson here is that the harvest will come eventually. The Jews were looking for immediate blessing. After all they reason, we've begun work on the temple. But by December, they've sowed their crops. they put their seed in the field. That's what verse 19 means when it says, Is the seed yet in the barn? No, it's not. They have sowed it in the field. They have planted it by faith. It's time to plant the crop, but it's not time to harvest the crop. Verse 19 tells us it's not time for the grape to bring forth or the fig tree or the pomegranate or the olive tree. It's not time for the harvest yet. And God says, trust me, it's not harvest time. I promise you, I'll bless you. Just walk with me and wait on me and I will get you there. God says when the harvest comes in, you'll see what I'm saying is true. The farmer knows this. He plants his seed in the soil. It takes a while for the seed to germinate and for the tender plant to push through the soil, for the plant to grow, for the fruit to develop, and for the harvest to mature. And the farmer must wait patiently until all the steps are completed. And when he does, he goes into the harvest and he reaps the fruit of his labor. And that's what God's saying to Israel. You can't see it now, but the harvest is coming. Isn't that how it is with us? We get defeated because we expect immediate results. Well, I prayed and I asked God to fix this. I repented of my sin. Why am I still going through this? We expect immediate blessing, but God is saying, Listen, I have forgiven you and I've put you on the path of blessing. You just got to trust me and not be weary and well-doing for in due time you will reap. Just don't faint. 
these Jews were at the point of giving up again. So God says, hang in there and keep building. When the harvest time comes, you're going to see a different harvest this year than you have been seeing in past years. It took these Jews four years to rebuild the house of God. They had to work through opposition. They had to work through discouragement. They had to persevere in the face of every excuse to stop. And by obeying God and rebuilding God's house, they were sowing the seeds of faith, and God responds by saying, I will bless you. I will bless you. Don't allow the problems you face along the way discourage you from walking with Him. Keep walking with Him. Now, if we want God to bless what we do for His glory, the first step is going to be us acknowledging our sin and repenting of it. Because sin contaminates everything we touch, right? The only way for us to experience holiness in our lives is for us to be made holy in our hearts. And the only way that can happen is when sin is dealt with and we walk with God by faith. Every step, every decision, taking it toward the light, walking in His direction, moving forward for the glory of God. And God in His time will turn things around for us For us as individuals, for us as a community of believers, sometimes that takes time. But as soon as we repent, God says, I'm going to bless you. And the blessing of God begins the very moment we confess, repent, and are forgiven. And so the key to receiving the best God has is simple faith and obedience. God says, I want you to trust and obey. But if you allow sin to dwell in your heart, it will contaminate every area of your life. It will hinder your family. It will hinder your church. It will hinder your community. Confess it and forsake it, and you become a candidate for God's blessing. Can anybody here besides me identify with these Jews? Can you identify with them? They were putting forth so much labor, doing so many good things, and yet the whole time they were doing it, they had a contamination. They had a contagion in them. And it was making everything around them sick. But as soon as they dealt with it, as soon as they confessed, repented, and got busy serving the Lord, God said, I'm going to bless you. Just walk with me and hang around. And you're going to see my hand of blessing in your life. I wonder how many of us today need to get honest about something in our own hearts. Because we've allowed it to be there. We've allowed it to take root in us. And we know that it's contaminating every area of our lives. Solution? Confess it. Repent of it. Forsake it. And God says, I will bless you. So, 
I guess it comes down to this. Do you want God to bless your work for Him? Do you want God to bless your church? Do you want God to bless your family? Do you want the blessings of God more than you want to hang on to your sin? That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? I, for one, would like to see God bless us. And the only way that's going to happen is for me to be clean and you to be clean. So if you feel ineffective in your work for the Lord, and sometimes you wonder if it's worth the effort, you might need to stop looking at everybody else for the problem and look a little bit closer to home and ask God to shine the spotlight into your heart and show you what you need to confess, repent of, and forsake so that you can become a conduit for the blessings of the Lord. If you're lost, everything you touch is contaminated. Everything. And you need to come to Christ for salvation. He'll set you on a path of wholeness and blessing like you never imagined. And God's blessings are only found in Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, I close with this. Come, Brother Bobby. You'll never find peace. You'll never find contentment. And you'll never find fulfillment in your sins. You'll only find them in a holy life of walking with God. That's it. That's it. You have been listening to a sermon from Calvary Baptist Church. Thank you for taking the time to visit our webpage today and to listen to our sermon. Please check back often for new content. We'd love to have you visit with us at Calvary Baptist Church. The church is located at 1369 Blowing Rock Boulevard, Northwest in Lenore, North Carolina. Our Sunday morning worship begins at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m., and Wednesday night at 7 p.m., and you would be welcome at any of our services. Thanks again for listening, and may the Lord bless you is our prayer.